0: Welcome to Fast Talk, the Velo News podcast and everything you need to know to ride like a pro. Hello and welcome to Fast Talk. I'm your host Chris Case, managing editor of Velo News. A few weeks ago on episode 56, my co-host Coach Trevor Connor and I talked with Colby Pierce about what it takes to make an attempt at the hour record. We recorded that episode a few months prior to releasing it and we posted it just a few days after colby set the masters 45 to 49 world record with a scorching 50.245 kilometers 833 meters farther than the previous record trevor recently caught up with colby to talk about his successful attempt for this special episode of fast talk colby talked about the record itself what was involved in training for it, the difficulties of selecting gears and training on a track that was different from the one where he set the record and how he managed that god-awful pain. And Colby wasn't just there as an athlete. Several of the riders he coaches were there as well, and most of them set world or national records. We hope you enjoy this follow-up to our episode on The Hour Record. And if you take one thing away from it, we hope it's that Colby wasn't just talking a good game in the previous episode. He definitely put his money where his mouth is so are you ready to learn what it takes to set a world record let's make you fast
1: so let's start with my first question you set the men's 40 was 40 to 45 or 45 to 49.
2: Yeah, 45 to 49. Uh,
1: So you set that record, and it sounds like you pretty much crushed that record. So what was the previous record? How long has it stood, and and what did you do?
2: Yeah, um, the previous record was held by Kent Bostick. He'd sent it in Manchester, England, which is, of course, at sea level, and that was in 99. And he rode 49.3 kilometers for his hour, and I rode uh, 50.245K. So I believe it was 833 meters further.
1: And for people who are unfamiliar with the hour record, can you give a sense of how big 800 meters
2: is? Well, so each lap on the velodrome is 250 meters, so that means I would have lapped him three times over the hour. So that kind of gives you a sense of of how much uh, farther I went. Sorry, I had used further earlier. I had to look this up because I've been using these two terms so frequently lately. Uh, farther is definitely the one you want to use for distance. But that's, uh, to put it in further context, if you're doing about a minute and 12 second pace is that's your pace for one kilometer at 50 K an hour. So if, since I wasn't quite, I was 833 meters ahead of Kent, that means I would have been roughly a little bit less than a minute ahead of him. So if we had done an hour long time trial, I would have been around about a minute ahead of him, which is a significant gap, but really isn't like if he watched us riding side by side, you really don't see much of a speed difference, but it just slowly creeps out over time. So,
1: When I hear about people having successful hour record attempts, sometimes you're just talking 10, 20 meters. So this this was big.
2: Yeah, yeah. It can come down to really close hour to, at the end. Um, you know, like when Chris Boardman set his record in the Mercs position, he just barely beat Eddie and he he knew he was close and he just kind of hung on and then sprinted the last few laps and was able to eke out a gap. And then a more recent example of that is uh, Victoria Busey. When she set the world at record and beat uh, Evelyn Stevens' time, she was just barely hanging on, I guess, um, for that ride. It was a pretty impressive ride. She was a little bit over, a little bit under, a little bit over, a little bit under. And at the end, she just dug herself into a hole and went nuclear and managed to get just a tiny gap. I think her final distance improvement was 40-something meters, 48 meters or 42 meters, something like that. Not much at all. So,
1: so you did 50.245. Can you give us a sense of how that stacks up just in general?
2: Uh, So a buddy of mine, a guy named Mike Mowat, has quite an extensive list of our records that include pretty much every record and distance ever ridden, pretty much ever. And the only exclusions from that are uh, like HPVs or, or vehicles where people are riding recumbent positions and things like that. That's a different category. But he includes all the records, meaning... You know, Graham's Superman position and Graham's egg position and the modern positions and boardman's Superman and all those. And I'm somewhere around for a long time I was around the top twenty of all time world farthest distances. Uh, there's been such a rash of of records attempts recently that even though I went farther than I did when I was uh twenty-three years old in, in nineteen ninety-five, I'm now just barely in the top thirty. So I think I'm around twenty seventh or eighth or something like that in terms of total total distance ridden in an hour.
1: But that is still top thirty in the world of any record attempt. You have a very, very respectable distance for for anybody.
2: Yeah, I mean, I have to be um, feel grateful that I I popped in there and yeah, I'm able to be on the same first page as guys like Jens Voigt and Chris Boardman and and uh, and people like that. I mean, even um, you know Tom Zerbel, he holds our U.S. record and his distance is quite far. He's actually eighth on that list. So that's pretty cool. I mean, I'm in some tall companies, so I feel honored to be on that list. Yeah, for sure.
1: What was Tom Zerbol's distance?
2: Tom also rode in Aguas Calientes, and he rode just over 53K an hour. 53.037, which is an incredible ride. I mean, Tom is just a machine. That guy's a beast. So I got to correct myself here. I just pulled. I actually pulled up the list. I didn't, couldn't find it a minute ago. And I'm actually uh, just outside the top 30. I'm 32nd, just behind Francesco Moser, which is pretty cool, and Graham Brie and ahead of uh, Lever Tongan, who's a New Zealand rider, a Kiwi who rode a a 50.226 way back in 1997 on a sea level track. So that's an incredible achievement.
1: So let's get back to your hour record. Tell us a little bit about the experience, how you approached it, how you handled the pain, and and what you feel led to such a successful attempt.
2: Well, I live in Boulder, and we've got the Boulder Valley Velodrome. It's about a 40-minute ride from my house. So I trained there as often as I could. I definitely did weekly sessions there. And Ended up doing quite a bit of 10K efforts. That kind of was my bread and butter. So I was doing four by 10K and five by 10K. If I'm doing 50K riding on that track, I figure that's going to be duplicating my workload. And I pretty much would try to do them at race pace. The challenge there is that our track is, it's a little bit, it's about three and a half years old now. And at this point in the season, just late summer is getting a bit bumpy. So it wasn't super fast, not as fast as it has been. Uh, It's got some little bit of uh, Colorado weather hitting it. And also usually it's windy. So I'm not actually looking at my speed and saying, well, I need to be on pace for what I, what the distance is that I want to do in the final hour. It's more about just making the power and doing the work. So that was a bread and butter workout. And that helped prepare me physically for the demands of the hour, which, you know, we talked about that in the other podcast, like Chris was saying in his hour, he felt like his head weighed 55 pounds by the end of it. From all the, the G's in the corner, you, your body really has to deal with that stress and that load of just repeated laps. So I did 201 laps during the ride. So that's really 400 corners where you're probably experiencing definitely more than one G in the corners. I don't know exactly how much probably depends a bit on the track and the speed and some other stuff and the weight of the rider, but that, that load in and of itself is a different load that you don't really get when you just do a 10 K interval on a TT bike, for example, on a flat road. So I was really trying to look at the demands of the event from that perspective and say, I need to be sports specific or, or event specific. So I did a lot of preparation there. And that helped me in some respects, for sure, deal with that load. One of the things that worked against me was that when I got there, we actually did a bit of quite a bit of aero testing in the last couple of days to refine a few things. We looked at a few details like socks and did a little bit of work with uh, some tires, different tires, guys, some different wheel and tire options, I had all the same wheels, but with different tires and a few other bits and pieces and i didn't expect to find this but my lowest position i could possibly achieve ended up being my fastest and that position was a little bit lower than what i was training on at boulder valley velodrome so it was like okay well i'm riding the lowest position my, my challenge that i experienced after about 40 minutes was i started to get some pretty significant hamstring and lower back pain um, and that probably was because i lowered my position i didn't lower it dramatically. Uh, in the last few days before the event, but it was definitely lower than I had been training on.
1: Right. And in this specialized, an event, any even minor change you're going to feel.
2: Definitely. So the other interesting part was I didn't, since I was always training on an outdoor track and I was doing that kind of speed conversion, I was looking at my speed for my efforts and going, okay, how much speed, how much faster is Aguas Calientes going to be? And going into the event, I wasn't super optimistic, to be honest, because most of the efforts that I had done at Boulder Valley Velodrome, I was getting around 47 and a half to 50 or to excuse me, to 48 and a half K an hour. So I knew my goal was 49, three. So we're talking 2K an hour faster at Aguas to make the record. And I'm going, OK, there's some wind and there's some bumps here. But man, 2K is a lot. I don't know. And it's not like I was training on box. Clincher rims and uh jersey like i'm training in a skin suit i'm training with my aero helmet i do have a disc on so there wasn't massive gains to be made from my training setup to my race setup and then i got there got to august who so did some aero testing and then the day before i did a 10k test and looked at my average speed and looked at my heart rate and i knew at that moment i knew i was going to be okay uh i did a 10k test and i barely basically got to tempo heart rate and i was at or above pace so i went okay I'm in the green. All I have to do is just execute this ride and not fall apart in the last 20 minutes. And I should be OK. So that was a huge relief.
1: Was it difficult picking your gear ratio? Because obviously the what you were using in Boulder wasn't what you yep. used in, in the attempt. It had to be difficult to select the gearing.
2: So I had my my previous hour records to, to use as some basis for my gear selection and also my training. But yeah, the gearing in Boulder frequently since I was battling wind, I would gear down a little bit uh initially i was gearing down like in july and august so that i could handle it and later i was intentionally riding a heavier gear because i'm a rider who's challenged to make good force and i figured if i was a little over that would be good training it would add to the training load so I was kind of slogging through the headwind stretches and then you know use it trying to wind up the gear in the tailwind but when i did my hour record in 95 in Colorado springs i had ridden a 55 14 and that was very close to 100 rpm average when i went that distance which was very close to the distance I ended up going in Aguas Calientes. it was 50.191 K. And so I I had that as a baseline. The big variable being that Colorado Springs is a 333 meter track and Aguas is a 250. And so your variability in speed and cadence between the straights and the corners in Aguas is much higher than it is in the Springs, uh, like dramatically higher. So really, if you're averaging 100 RPM in Aguas, you're hitting maybe 105, 106 in the corners and, you know, 94, 95 in the, in the straights. There's potentially almost a 10 RPM swing, depending on the lap. It's, it's probably more like 68 RPM, but it's not insignificant. And when you do that, when your cadence varies like that, then of course your power varies. And when your power varies, you're basically, that means you're introducing accelerations. And anytime you're introducing accelerations, for most riders, it works to gear down a touch. So you can ride a bigger gear if your power is going to be extremely steady. But as you accelerate, so now I'm looking at, in Aguas, 400 accelerations. And my tactic was to push coming through the turns and into uh, entering into the straight and then relax on the straight and then push in the turns. So when I did my 10K test, I intentionally rode a slightly smaller gear just to see how it would feel. And I finished that 10K test and I looked at the data and said, I'm going to stick with that exact gear. So I ended up going smaller. I rode a 5815 in August which i believe is a 104 if i remember correctly and a 5514 is a 106 if my math is right i have to look at a gear chart but so that's what i ended up going with and it i believe it was the right gear for me on that day um and i did average 103 rpm for that ride
1: What I I love about all this is just the amount of detail that a lot of people, unless they've done this attempt or have experience with it, uh, wouldn't even think about. But it's so important because you really get used to a particular cadence. You also talked about the different sizes of the track and have an effect on you. And ultimately, you have Mm -hmm. to go into this and say, I I, I have to select a gear and I'm stuck with that gear. And that could be the difference between setting the record and having a really bad day.
2: Yep, yep you're stuck with it. <laughs> Once you make it, that's it.
1: So moving on, when you were doing the actual attempt, we interviewed you before you talked about in some of your past attempts, you've had really good attempts that you you said you had a good music track playing in your head. And, and it wasn't that painful of experience. You talked about some where you went to a pretty dark place. Was there dark moments mm. in this one? Or since you said that you, you essentially lapped the previous record holder three times, you had to have been aware very early on that you were on pace for the record. Did that help?
2: Yeah. Yeah, that helps tremendously. I mean, and we, we, yeah, we did speak about this with Chris and I pointed out to him that he set himself up for a hard ride because he really didn't have a bar that was a, close to his goal that he knew he had to kind of jump over. When you have a line in the sand that you know that there's going to be a big positive consequence if you cross that line, then it gives you that guiding light or that motivation to to throttle yourself. And Chris didn't have that, so it was was challenging for him. But I definitely had that. So, you know, Rob Van Helling, who's the husband of a a rider that I coach, Molly, they've been going to to Mexico for a few years, and he's got this cool timing system. He's one of the people who organized this trip, and he's got a timing system with with a timing tape and an iPad set up. And so I literally saw every single lap split for the entire hour to the 10th of a second. And I knew what my schedule had to be to beat Kent's record to the 10th of a second. And so I was getting constant feedback. Every 17 seconds, I knew whether I was up or down. And then additionally, the guys had a big whiteboard, and about every 10 minutes, they would write on the whiteboard what my cumulative average speed was to that point. So I knew exactly the distance that I was on target for. Um, and I knew that I was ahead. And that is just you can you can tolerate an insane amount of pain when you know you're already ahead of the record and that's a good thing because i will definitely say that i put up with a very very intense level of discomfort uh during this record about 40 minutes in it got it got really dark for me i was in a lot of pain my hamstrings and back were were pretty lit uh from the effort and it got to the point where at the during the ride i actually thought those were my rate limiting factor i was like man i'm i'm really in the hole here this is not good Uh, I could go, I could be going faster if I was capable of, if my hamstrings weren't hurting so badly. After the ride, I realized that that's what was talking to me the most, but it really wasn't the case because I went to walk down the stairs and my, both my quads were just annihilated. I was having a big trouble standing upright after the ride, but I also couldn't sit down afterwards because my glutes and hamstrings were so torched. So I did do doping control afterwards and I, I didn't sit for three hours. I just paced. Wow because I just couldn't sit on my butt. (laughs) My muscles were too smoked. So how did you get yourself through that pain? Well, I'll say that, you know, having been in the sport for 30 years and done racing of all different varieties, you get a really good feel for what you're good at and what you're not. And the sport is just so incredibly humbling. I mean, I've gotten my ass kicked in so many different levels, so many different times. I know what I'm not good at quite clearly, but probably the hour record is probably the single tiniest sliver of what I'm naturally best at. For some reason, I'm really good at just, um, setting the throttle at a certain level and just holding it there in spite of what's happening. And I don't know why I have that kind of capacity, but that's what I did. And for me, even though it was a tremendous amount of pain and discomfort, there's, uh, for some reason I can just hold the throttle there when there's, when I am determined to, and you just, you just keep going. And for me, even though 20 minutes is, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry, I'm getting of our cold, uh, Sound like I got a frog in my throat. For me, even though 20 minutes is a long period of time, especially when you're in it, the clock can almost stop. It's really also only 20 minutes. And I know that when it was over, I would be a world record holder. All I had to do was hold that throttle open. So when you boil it down to that very simple binary choice, are you going to keep going at this speed or are you going to let the gas off? It becomes very simple. And my choice was, I'm just going to keep going. It's only pain and discomfort. And I feel like after 30 years in this sport, I've developed a relatively high pain tolerance for when I decide to walk through the door and deal with the pain. That's how I handled it.
1: (laughs) That's one of kind of the underlying messages we've had with this. We've talked about all the details that go into the hour record, all the preparation that goes into it. But ultimately, anybody who's going to be successful at it, there is a point where the pain gets pretty unbearable. Mm-hmm. and it simply comes down to your ability to when your your body is screaming at you to stop to say no I'm gonna keep going
2: yeah it's just a choice you make I mean you know the pain's coming it's just a choice you just say I'm just gonna I'm gonna list I'm gonna ignore all these distractions from the one one thing I have to do which is just go as fast as possible yeah and that effort requires a very deep emotional reserve of commitment to the event and it's something that takes its toll on you i think you can't always rely on that or do that it has to be the right place in the right moment and after months of training for the event and having it in the back of your head you're prepared to to make that step and walk through that door it's not something i could do you know at this point certainly tomorrow i couldn't go you know ride up a local climb and and reach that level of of commitment to it uh because there wouldn't be as much on the line so it's it's about the context of the relationship what you have on the line Your relationship to the event and what you've built up to it to put into it so that's a big part of it too
1: so it sounds like position was a big factor like that that small change in your position really had an effect on your your back your hamstrings was there anything else about your position that affected you in the in the attempt
2: so one interesting thing that we've kind of been looking at a lot recently and a challenge that i've had as a rider is head position um you know some athletes are really good at burying their head and and others, maybe not so much. Um, I've been on the not so much category. I'm certainly not a head up kind of guy. But so having Rob's feed, his timing system during the hour, it's it's accurate to the 10th of a second. So you see instant feedback on every lap. So if you make a little waiver in your line, for example, you don't ride the black line in the corner, you'll see it immediately in the splits. And one thing I started playing with during the hour was my head position in the corners. And so since I was accelerating in the corners and applying more power there, And also because you naturally accelerate in the corners anyway, the faster you go, the more important aerodynamics are. And I started playing with dropping my head in the corners and instantly saw an improvement in my splits. And that, of course, is a powerful motivator too. When you're out there going as hard as you can, as soon as I saw that, I started doing it more and more. And when you drop your head, I mean, I'm talking like my nose is touching my forearms dropping. So I cannot see where I'm going. (laughs) Just to be clear, I don't advise people do this unless you're on a closed track uh, and even then there's some risk because when you drop your head of course your vestibular system gets challenged your balance system gets challenged you're already going through a corner at increased g's you know you have to sense where you are in the velodrome now I can look down and see kind of like a swimmer does in the pool I can see the black line but it becomes quite hard to control the bike going through the corner turning at an angle at speed while you're of course going fast and so even though my line would sometimes be worse through the corners if I kept my head dropped My split would usually be faster. I could see a tenth or two tenths faster immediately. And so, as soon as I saw that, I started doing it as many laps as I could, which requires an immense amount of concentration. I mean, you're already focused the whole time. It was really interesting to see that uh, achievement, which goes back to, I think, one of the comments I made in our old, uh, older, our previous podcast, which is that being arrow at speed on a bike is an act of contortion. It's, it's, you have to put yourself in an arrow box and then go as hard as you can. Make no mistake about it. So,
1: And we'll, we'll also say these sorts of tactics are are for experienced track riders only.
2: Agreed. 100%. Yeah. And, you know, it's even a challenge trying to train in that position because if other people are on the track, you can't be riding a lap around with your head buried between your elbows. I mean, it's just way too dangerous.
1: So, well, we've talked with Colby, the the athlete and the world record holder. Now let's... Kind of finish up with five minutes talking to Colby, the coach, because you had several of your athletes there with you. And I'm looking at the whole list here. And you're not the only one on the list who actually set a world record. So why don't you talk a little bit about some of the athletes you had there and some of their accomplishments?
2: Yeah, it was it's super cool to be uh, there and and experience it with athletes. I worked with uh, a couple of people on the ground there that I just sort of helped on the day. But um, I had Molly Van Howling, who was there, and she had just aged up to the 45 to 49. So she, the previous record was, for her, pretty low-hanging fruit. I I believe it was a 42.
1: It was 41.239.
2: Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, she's ridden over 47 before. So we knew she was going to get that. But she also wanted to try, she actually did two attempts uh, while we were there. She wanted to see if she'd get close to Evelyn's record pace, which was almost 48K. And the first night she set out to do that, and she was on pace for that for about 20 minutes or so. And then she started to fall a bit behind, and then we saw a couple mushroom clouds, um, which were her right and left legs, and she she kind of hit the wall. And so we, we uh, pulled her off the track and agreed that she should um, not drill herself into oblivion with that. She kind of, sometimes you have to go to the edge of the cliff, and when you do that, sometimes you fall off, right? Yep. So she gave it a good crack. And then the next night she came back. And one uh, to just try to set a PR, and she was very close to doing that. She finished just a few meters behind her her best ride, so it was a very, very high forty six. Uh, and so that established the forty five record.
1: That's the women's forty five to forty nine.
2: Correct. Yeah. Um, and Molly's just an amazing athlete. She she she's a mutant. One interesting thing about Molly that uh, people might find to be a bit a bit of a fascinating fact is that she uses uh, preposterously big gears. She's averaging around the mid-70s for her cadence for our records. And I've never seen an athlete like her. It seems we've done a lot of testing with her. Her husband, Rob, is uh, he does a lot of arrow testing and a lot of... He's got a lot of spreadsheets going on, and and he's a really smart guy. And uh, we've done a lot of work together uh, looking at her, her times and her power and her cadence. And seemingly, there's almost no bottom with her. We keep putting bigger gears on, and she just goes faster. So... There was a long time where the rate limiting factor was how big of a gear can we fit on her bike? Um, Like, literally, will the chainring fit on there without hitting the chainstay? So she did set that record. Unfortunately, she went so deep in her second uh, attempt that night that after she crossed the line, she got a little cross eyed and she ended up falling off her bike in uh, turn one. I think it was the change of, you know, you do almost 200 laps in the pole at a certain rhythm. And then she swung up track as you usually do after you cross the line. And then the banking just. She got a little disoriented. She had gone so deep in the last five minutes of that record. She crashed. Fortunately, it wasn't too bad, but she did. She bruised some ribs pretty heavily and banged her hip up pretty bad. So, you know, an outstanding effort. It just shows how deep you can go in an effort like that. You just uh, really go to the to the depths. Um, and Molly's got a huge capacity to push herself. She's world champion in the in, uh, Masters World Champion in her age group in the time trial this year as well, which were in Italy. So quite an accomplished writer. And then uh, another writer that I work with, Alan uh, Vugrensik, who is out of the San Jose area, he set the kilo record for the men's 45 to 49, which was really cool to see him do that. I actually gave that record a crack myself last year and missed it by a few thousands. And Alan went and got it by, I think he got it by seven or eight tenths, if I remember correctly. I'm not looking at the list right now, but
1: So I've looked at it right now, and he was 106.262, and the old record was 106.96.
2: Yep, around seven-tenths. So that was pretty cool. And Alan's just a mountain of a man. He's he's a giant, powerful rider, pretty much the direct opposite of me. So he worked for that all season, and uh, that was really cool to be there with him and, and have him set that record. So it was pretty pretty neat. Um, and then I helped Lanita a bit with her, Lanita Anthony with her 2k and she bettered her own 2k mark from the previous year by a bit as well. So that was pretty neat to see. And then a few other, a few other riders that, that I worked with, you know, and gave some advice to and helped him out while we we're there. It's, it's a tight knit group, you know, everybody's there to kind of, as the Americans going to set their record. So we all work together a bit, uh, helped Peter Magdal a bit with him. He did a, a few rides. This was really, he's quite new to the track, so. He did his first 4K ever. He was working on establishing some para records that had not been established. And then he was also hoping just to see how he stacked up against the the master's records in his own age category. And that was a big... He was on a big learning curve that weekend and experienced some difficulty during his first hour for sure. But hung tough and came back and improved his own distance the next night. And that is pretty remarkable to go back and do that. You know, for people who who go down there, you know, we have the track rented for four or five days. So you can conceivably do records on attempts on multiple nights. And that's why sometimes people do an hour and they say, Oh, I need to refine this or improve that. And they'll stop it. And then they'll come back the next night or maybe wait 24 hours and come back again. And I know that for me, I could barely pedal a bike the next day. Uh I was absolutely throttled. So I couldn't imagine trying to do like a 3k attempt or something like that. There's just no way I would have been able to dig deep. That's just where I was at. So when other riders come and do multiple attempts on multiple days, we've got nothing but respect for him because you're going for a world record. You're going to dig yourself in a pretty deep hole. So that's it's pretty cool to see.
1: Yeah, and he went 800 uh, meters further on the second night.
2: So obviously, he's not gaining fitness in 24 hours. That was him just figuring out how to pace himself a little better, probably figuring out how to ride the lines a little better in the corners, you know, maybe refining some things like head position. So that's pretty cool.
1: Being a special episode, we're, we're going to keep this one a little bit shorter, but we always like to finish with some, some take-homes for our listeners. So having gone through this experience, working with all these athletes and, and seeing their success, if there's one bit of advice, suggestion, or, or take-home you can give our listeners, what would it be?
2: I would say uh, you're tougher than you think you are, meaning... You know, people it's easy for people to perhaps listen to um, a podcast like this and, and say, wow, you know, think about their own goals and think about how they might wanna go to Aguas Calientes someday and and try it and, and go to a super fast track and, and see what they can do. Or maybe it's simpler than that. Maybe it's that they wanna set their own, you know, a best time in a local ten mile time trial or or up a local hill climb or something like that. And you know, it's kind of the same principle as people who are learning how to sprint. Um, you go to a criterion and and if you're not a sprinter what happens you 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 mix it up in the in the final 5 minutes of the race and as soon as someone bumps an elbow with you you tap out you say oh i you know i can't do that the sprint was too crazy people were doing nuts nutty things they were diving into holes and flying into corners and i i just can't take that kind of risk you know i don't and then they walk away from the race sometimes feeling bad about themselves going well you know, I just don't have what it takes to be a, a sprinter. I don't have the balls or the ovaries, however you want to phrase it. I don't have the the guts to put myself on the line. You know, I'm too worried about crashing. Well, you have to understand there's a relationship between the reward that you perceive you can win and your own ability to put yourself out there, to throw down. And that that the throwdown can come in the form of diving into a corner at a speed that you think is is unsafe, or also digging that much deeper to get that last half a percent or 1% or whatever it is. It's really the same thing for the purposes of how you're going to put yourself out there. And so if you're a 129-pound rider in a criterium full of a bunch of sprinters and there's $10,000 on the line, yeah, there's a chance that you're not going to find yourself having enough balls to throw down and do a real effort at the end. On the other hand, if you've got, uh, let's say the criterium is the last stage of a five-day stage race and you've ridden well all week and there's a 10-second time bonus and you can move from fifth to the podium or have a chance to win, suddenly your balls get bigger. Sorry to use a that analogy, but all of a sudden, if you believe that you think you can do it and there's a lot on the line and you're riding really well, you're sprinting better than you ever have in your life, then all of a sudden, you've got this ability to dig deep and fly through the corner and also throw down and sprint against someone who you would never consider sprinting against in a different paradigm. It's the same thing when you put yourself down on a record. If you train all year and decide, I'm going to really throw down for this hill climb and you invest your emotional energy, you invest your time, you really visualize that happening every time you do your interval workouts. Your interval workouts are specifically designed for that task. Your endurance rides, you're thinking about it every day, it gets you out of bed. On race day, you're going to have that ability to dig deeper than you ever have before. So it's about emotional investment. It's about forward intent. It's about positive thought. So that's something I would say might be a good takeaway for, for people who are sort of wondering how I or any of these writers can dig this deep during this event. It's it's about your total emotional and physical investment in that moment. Even if you don't necessarily succeed, It's you walk away from it saying, I went to the end. I went to the bottom or the top, I guess I would say.
1: It's great advice. And I think if you could summarize that down to one sentence, it's Find a motivator. Find a powerful motivator because it's amazing what you can do when yeah. you have that high level of yeah. motivation. All right. Well, Colby, thank you. Really appreciate the interview. Um, and thank we'll, you. Hopefully, we'll, we will get you back on the show again soon. Our listeners have absolutely loved you.
0: That was another episode of Fast Talk. As always, we love your feedback. Email us at fasttalkatvelonews.com. Subscribe to Fast Talk on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Play. Be sure to leave us a rating and a comment. Become a fan of Fast Talk on Facebook at facebook.com slash velonews and on Twitter at twitter.com slash velonews. Fast Talk is a joint production between Velo news and Connor Coaching. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. For Trevor Connor, Colby Pierce, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening.